HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by VisitNapaValley.com, the official page for travel to the Napa Valley, America's legendary wine, food, arts, and wellness capital. For more information, visit www.VisitNapaValley.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Um, I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and when I'm not hosting In the Drink, uh, you can find me at one of our restaurants where I'm the beverage director at Delanima, Lartuzzi, Anfora, and Lepicho. Um, and you can listen to In the Drink live on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, 10, uh, 10 a.m. on Wednesday mornings, and we tape here right at the uh, back of Roberta's Restaurant. All right, so I'm uh, extremely excited today. Uh, today's guest is Jamie Graves. Uh, Jamie is the general manager and beverage director at Sakamai. And uh, I didn't know Jamie uh, until a, a couple, uh, maybe a month or two ago when uh, my girlfriend Alyssa and I sat down at Sakamai and had this extraordinary, mind-blowing meal. Uh, I feel like we learned as much about sake in, just in that one meal uh, as, we, as we have uh, known to that point and tasted some just the absolute coolest sakes around um, and got to meet Jamie, who happens to be just a, not only an expert in this, but a super nice guy. Um, and I was like, got to have Jamie on the show. So welcome. Welcome to In the Drink. Thank you. It's, uh, thanks so much for having me here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have you here. And I'm super stoked you, you brought a bunch of sake for us to, uh, to try as yeah. well. That's, uh, that's uh, very kind of you. Um, all right, Jamie, so tell us about, about yourself a bit. You moved to Japan when you were 22 years old. How did like that seems like a uh, a, a huge leap uh, for for a Western? How did that happen? Um, I think uh, I mean I always like to say that I had no idea what I wanted to do uh, after like I finished college. I mean I had all of these uh, wide ranging interests of like music and um, food and all this different stuff, and um, I knew that I was just kind of thinking like, okay, what do I want to do? the rest of my life i'm not sure but i know that i want to have some experience living you know outside of the u.s uh at some point in my life and i figured like hey right now you know um i'm young like i probably won't get another chance like this so there was a an opportunity to get this like english teaching job 
over there right out of college. And I'm like, all right, well, that's, you know, one thing I can do. And I'll just go and, uh, go and see uh, where that takes me. Yeah. And did you speak Japanese at the time? Or did you have to learn while teaching English? Um, I kind of had to learn while I was there. I mean, I definitely um, studied a bit before I went, mm -hmm. but it was a lot of hands-on stuff. Um, Spanish was actually like my worst subject in high school. I mean, I just did not pick up foreign languages at all. And then for whatever reason, I was just really interested in stuff over there and kind of wanted to know what was uh, going on around me. So I, it kind of, you know, it was always, it was always a good challenge when I was there and it was always around me and obviously a lot of, you know, a lot of opportunities to practice. Yeah. I mean, what, what a challenging language to learn. You know, you go to a foreign country and come back and, and pick up a few things. Uh, Alyssa and I were talking recently, we spent about 10 days in Japan mm -hmm. and when we got back, we were like, are there any, do we remember anything that wasn't like specifically food related or uh, thank you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, like it's, it's a super, it, you know, the, 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 the words, the characters, the intonations, everything is so different from, uh, yeah. from English. It, I mean, it's definitely a super different language, but that was kind of the, the fun of it is it's like this, you know, this, this puzzle and it, it does have its own kind of internal logic, but it's very different from English in and of itself. So once it took me like a little while, but once you start to crack that, it's really like, it's really satisfying to be able to express yourself. And, um, I know, especially with grammar and stuff too, I'd like beat my head up against, um, different like uh grammar things I'm like i don't understand what this means and then suddenly you just like start speaking it yeah you start get it and like it was it was kind of a it was an interesting process it was like something i really challenged myself with at that time now if i could take a moment to brag about you to brag about my <laughs> guest here um jamie actually got the highest level and maybe you tell us more about it, the highest level of proficiency for a non-native japanese speaker number one number two competed in the world sake sommelier yeah. championships <laughs> and was one of the 10 finalists and then has also worked at some of the best uh, Japanese restaurants in New York City, such as Kajitsu, Brushstroke, and actually my favorite, uh, Sakemai. Right. I love this <laughs> is, is uh, super awesome. So, when, so I imagine that when you were there, mm -hmm. you, so you got there, didn't know what you're going to do, but when you got there, did something click about food and beverage? Um, it did. I um, kind of the first year um, I was there, and you know, I was in this um, really beautiful uh, rural area. Um, I you know, I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm doing this English teaching thing. Um, and I just kind of got this opportunity, um, for a cooking job. I was ordering, um, just cause the one, the one thing I loved all the food in Japan, but the one thing I, I couldn't find in my area was like really uh, great whole wheat bread. And I'd made a lot of bread from scratch in college. Um, so I'd found this company that could mail order you like yeast, whole wheat flour, all this stuff. And it was, um, a company that had been started by this American guy and his Taiwanese wife. And they were this big um, importer of organic foodstuffs to Japan and distributed them there. And they were just advertising for uh, like a cook at this small kind of restaurant cafe that they ran um, at their, their company, you know, um, the headquarters, like at the, the base of near their warehouse. Um, so I responded to that. And I think because I took this like, it's like three or four hours by train to go. It was like kind of outside of Tokyo, pretty far from where I was. And I went down twice for interviews and they told me afterwards, they're like, yeah, you, you know, clearly seem to want it so much. We feel like we couldn't not give you this job. So I, um, because it was an American, like he was, you know, um, and there was a lot of, uh, you know, Americans, Taiwanese and stuff in addition to Japanese working at that company. So it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty easy way to get into Japan for somebody who's not Japanese. And then tell us about your transition back to America and yeah. uh, your first job uh, when you got here. Um, well, that was um, kind of a kind of a fluke, actually. It was, you know, one of the 
um, things I think about. It's like, man, that was one of the luckiest things I ever did was um, I'd, I'd studied Japanese and I'd... Um, you know, I, I came back thinking like, oh, I, maybe I, I want to try to do translation. And um, I was trying to uh, do freelance gigs with that in New York. And, you know, it wasn't um, 100% paying the bills. So I was like, all right, well, let me just see about getting a server job. And I'd search Craigslist every day for um, translation gigs, which I'd occasionally get. But, I, you know, inevitably searching Japanese, it was mostly people searching for like servers at sushi restaurants and stuff like that. And I saw this... Um, this Craigslist ad that uh, said it was a new, you know, vegetarian restaurant opening up in the East Village. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll try that. And I just kind of went in and that was, uh, that ended up being Kajitsu, which was an amazing experience. Yeah. I mean, Kajitsu, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, uh, the owner of Kajitsu's father has this like extraordinary restaurant in, uh, Kyoto. Uh, not the owner. That's, um, one of the opening, uh, uh, sous chefs there. Okay. And he was the manager until about, um, like a, a week or so ago. He kind of switched over to be the manager and he was a jack of all trades when he was there. He was like, crazy. he was helping with like prep cooking. He'd do counter service. He was the general manager. Um, he recently left back for Japan, but he, he really wants to come back to New York soon. Fantastic. And this is, this was like a Buddhist inspired vegetarian cuisine. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's a kind of thing that it's even not super common in Japan, but it's, um, something that Buddhist monks, you know, same way, like, um, monks in, in Europe would kind of devote themselves to these very specific tasks, you know, like making beer or something, or, you know, wine, trying to, um, trying to, uh, develop the best techniques they can for this because they were Buddhist and, you know, they're not allowed to take life. They, um, uh, just inevitably the cuisine they made was vegan, but then there was all of this thought that went into it of like preparation and, you know, progression of flavors and, um, techniques. And it's actually a lot of the techniques that came out of this cuisine form kind of the basis for most, uh, Japanese cuisine, like how you cut things, how you prepare them, how you think about flavor, like all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, someone with, with no understanding at all of, of really what the mindset that what goes into it, it's really easy to appreciate just the sheer knife skills like it, it yeah. the plates are <laughs> extraordinarily beautiful i can imagine if you're a buddhist and you don't have things like you know uh, money or sex to to uh, <laughs> to you know distract you and you can focus on something yeah. like layering flavors and great knife skills you could be like the best <laughs> at it i think yeah i mean back in the day that was really like all right all our energy is going into this like, <laughs> <laughs> crazy so is this kind of your first intro intro into the world of really good sake or did that come later um yeah it was really actually in new york i mean um one of the big ironies of sake is that it's um it's not uh hugely popular in japan um sort of premium sake has been growing in popularity a lot but overall over there they're they're much more excited about beer wine whiskey and um shochu which is this kind of uh, indigenous spirit that that's that's when i was there that's mostly what i was drinking with with people my age really you know, shochu is distilled like a distilled spirit it's pretty strong is that something that people drink with you know with with their meals at night or is um, that kind of like the after dinner situation? no it's it's you can it's actually um it's stronger than it's in this weird um kind of middle ground between like wines and liquors because mm-hmm. it's usually about 25 percent. so it's kind of mild enough that you can have it with food um, and it's, you get a lot of the flavors of the base ingredient with it. Um, it's really good with food. Actually, I've got, um, we, we do a kind of a special at Sakamai on Tuesdays, um, where we've got a shochu expert, my friend, Steven, uh, Lyman will, uh, pour shochus and it's, he's taught me a lot about it. Um, and they're, they can be really amazing pairing with food actually. Wow. I, I feel like I, I often strike out with shochu. I had a nice one, <laughs> uh, at, uh, Sakaya, mm-hmm. um, a sweet potato one, but, uh, I feel like I often strike out except for when I came into Sakamai and you're, you know, you guys poured some really beautiful stuff. I was like, Oh, they're cool. I, I could see what, like what's behind this now. Yeah, yeah. I can see, I can see what that's all about. Um, 
Okay, and then when, I mean, you, you've really kind of delved into and become this expert in, in sake. Mm-hmm. Um, when did that sort of happen? When you sort of started to realize? Because to know that as much as you do about sake, it had to be a conscious decision. Like, I'm going to study up about this. I'm going to read. I'm going to taste as much as I can. When did that progression start to happen? I mean, it really did start at Kajitsu because that was the first time where I'd um, been exposed to a bunch of uh, different really great sakes. Um, it was a small list when they first started there, but... I was just super excited. Any tasting that came up there, um, you know, I would always uh, go to tastings, uh, that kind of stuff. And it wasn't really until um, uh, I uh, was lucky enough to join the opening team at Brushstroke and worked with some some really world class uh, beverage directors there. Um, and seeing those guys, um, you know, these are guys with like a great um, background in wine and all kind of spirits, but then would really take their sake programs really seriously, which is not something I had really seen much before, and I don't think is actually that you know, that common, like people kind of put together a list, but these guys were really looking at it the same way you'd, you know, want to put together a, a world-class wine list, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for this fine dining restaurant. So, um, it was really seeing, uh, the first guy there was, um, this guy, Seiju Yang, who, um, he's, uh, uh, of Korean descent, but he's, you know, born and raised in Japan. Um, really brilliant guy. Um, he had like really interesting ideas about pairing and put together his list. Um, super young. He was like, uh, younger than me at the time. And then the um, the second guy was uh, my friend uh, Eric uh, Hastings, who's uh, now I mean no surprise to anybody who really knows him. He's now the uh, the beverage director at John George, and um, he just kind of came in there, did um, some really interesting stuff with pairings. Like I really learned a lot about um, specifically pairing from him. Like he could just from memory, like the chef would pull out a new dish, and he could pull out some obscure sake that he didn't even personally like all that much, but he knew we had a few of them in the back, and then it would be like the absolute perfect pairing with this asparagus soup. And just the fact that he could kind of keep that, you know, all wow. together in his head, I was super impressed by that and kind of um, just kind of that and the whole process of watching them like, you know, meet with, uh, sit down with uh, you know, salespeople and, and taste and talk about stuff. I was like, I, I was kind of realizing like I, I was a manager at that place, service manager, and I was kind of watching that. And I'm like, every time they were sitting down to taste, I was like, I want to be there. Like, I want to, you know, sit and, you know, learn about all this stuff they're talking about, how people come and introduce new stuff. Like it was really, uh, that was kind of the, the point I think where I, I thought like, Hey, this is something I really want to do like from here yeah. on out. And, and Eric, if you're listening, I want you on the show. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, I was thinking, I was thinking about it this morning. I was like, Oh man, we'd love to have Eric on the show. <laughs> um, yeah, it's such, such a great guy and a great, great palette there too. Yeah. Um, so other than, uh, the, the lack of drinking sake in, in Japan, what, what were there some other, um, things that you noticed about dining in Japan that you would like to translate, uh, maybe things that you that you saw there that you, that don't actually exist here in in American restaurants or um, things that yeah, tell us about yeah. that. Um, that's a yeah, that's an interesting question. I think um, I mean really what I've seen in the past like uh, seven eight years uh, since I've been working in New York in Japanese food. I mean just the the. A variety uh, has just exploded, um, and kind of the knowledge as well. I mean, uh, at Sakamai, um, we label ourselves an izakaya, which is something that a few years ago there was a few places like kind of cheap places on St. Mark's, which are really fun and cheap, but not really like great food. But I had um, really kind of high end um, izakayas or, or kind of like you know nicer izakayas that I go in Japan. Those are some of my just favorite places there, and um, I was really psyched with Sakamai that we can um, kind of do that. Like it's that small plates concept. Um, what's funny about it is that's totally exploded the past few years. I remember like some older guests that came in last year, um, 
they they said like oh we love everything here they're like don't call yourselves an izakaya everybody's doing that now i'm like well we we are an izakaya that's actually you know it's not a i know you guys see it as a faddish thing but that's like kind of a tradition that we're excited to to bring here um so in in japan you'll see izakaya at at different levels right you'll see like the izakaya where there's like it's only like old men smoking and drinking beer (laughs) to something that a little bit more refined or a lot more refined like definitely it's it spans all sorts of things i mean um uh kind of the thing i always think of is this one place i i once had like a a quick meal at which was just like kind of yakitori like chicken skewers um but it was literally just your seats were just like upturned like sake crates like plastic crates and the um the table itself was just two uh crates piled up with like some planks on it um everything from that to um up to like you know some really uh nice places that have thought a ton about their beverage selections that do you know really amazing food and i think um one or two of those have like michelin stars in tokyo now amazing yeah um all right we have one more question then we're going to take a quick break but i want to know about the um in last year september 2014 you attended the world sake (laughs) sommelier competition in tokyo as one of 10 finalists yeah and you were uh, selected for a judges' selection award. Congratulations! Thank That's you. awesome. What was that experience like? Um, that was uh, really fun and really unexpected. Um, it was there was kind of like a regional thing here in New York, and um, the prize for that was the round trip ticket to Japan, which was huge for me because I hadn't been back in several years. I was excited to go uh, see breweries and you know participate in this competition. And um, it was uh, it was fun. I was in this uh, hotel in downtown Tokyo. Got to meet um, all of these awesome uh, beverage professionals. Uh, both from around um, the U.S. It was the other two finalists um, were super nice, and then um, just uh, just all of these great Japanese sommeliers there. Um, people working the judges uh, were super super nice. I mean, everybody would hang out. It was a two day competition. I remember after the first day, it was just a big party, just hanging out with everybody and all these people that had been kind of like sitting there, kind of glaring at you, you know, um, during the judging part. Then you just kind of get to drink with them, and you're like, oh man, these you know we're kind of all in the same boat here. Everybody's just kind of trying to promote this drink and. Um, yeah, I was I was shocked the next day. Then uh, they selected me to be one of the the, the final ten people um, about it. But that was hilarious because I uh, for the final competition part, um, I, I wasn't expecting it. The, the initial rounds were just kind of in small rooms, and you're just kind of in front of the people as part of the competition. But it was in conjunction with this big annual tasting there. So the the final, the actually the finals were in front of like 150 or like 200 people, like television cameras, you know. Um, photographers and a bunch of just people from the general public and you got to get up on stage blind taste do service and i was doing it in japanese and trying not to fumble over words. wow yeah. that is so impressive I'm, I was, I'm blown away i haven't been that nervous in a few years i was like especially before i walked in there my stomach was just doing backflips like i haven't had in a while and you have to be thinking and speaking in japanese the whole time yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> absolutely super impressive okay on that note uh, we're going to take a quick break and we have a bunch of sakes to taste after this cool Break songs called Vicodin Dreams by Tackstar. This is In the Drink.
program was brought to you by visitnapavalley.com. Welcome to the Napa Valley, North America's legendary wine and food capital, where the art of living well is defined, and each season holds a story waiting to be discovered. Life feels slower here, lived at a place where tables are set with care. Fine wine and food are created from the bounty of our own vineyards and gardens, and relationships with friends and family gathered around the table are somehow sweeter. When planning a trip to the Napa Valley, we invite you to visit the destination's official visitor website, visitnapavalley.com, or stop by Napa County's official visitor information center, located in downtown Napa, where our friendly and knowledgeable community ambassadors can assist you in creating your own legendary Napa Valley experiences. The Visitor Information Center is located at 600 Main Street, Napa, and is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., seven days a week, 360 days a year. Your invitation to experience the Napa Valley beckons. Take a deep breath, lose yourself in our quiet green and golden hills, renew your body and spirit, taste our legendary wines and cuisine, and experience the people who make this valley like no other in the world. For more information, go to visitnapavalley.com. All right, we're back on In the Drink with Jamie Graves, the general manager and beverage director of Saka Mai, uh, my new favorite uh, <laughs> Japanese restaurant, new favorite place to drink sake. Um, Jamie is uh, also a, a Japanese language expert, sake expert, and all around nice guy. Uh, okay, we're gonna taste uh, some of the sakes that that you brought. What did what did you bring for us? Um, okay, so yeah, a selection of uh, five different ones. Um, I kind of a uh, what I really like to do with this, uh, the list at Sakamai is to really showcase kind of the diversity that's happening with sake right now. Um, up until even like about thirty years ago or so, um, most sake was kind of produced in very uh, similar, you know, kind of similar styles, um, and. I think that they've really been trying to think of it as like a wine um, type thing. They really try to mark themselves as rice wine. But I've always said that uh, really, you know, where where I'm interested to see sake going is closer to like what the uh, the American like beer uh, microbrewery movement is mm-hmm. doing, where like everybody can kind of pursue their own interests, um, that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of smaller breweries that are really starting to to do that and really like push the envelope. And you know, there's so many hundreds of years of tradition with it. I think a lot of places don't want to, do you know where this, this rice wine thing came from? It seems so misleading in a way. Yeah. So inaccurate. Was it just, um, because sake, the production style is more similar to beer right? yeah. and it has this funny Koji starter thing, yeah. which doesn't exist in beer or wine. Uh, and do you think it was just a, a, a misleading, like a poorly, uh, conceived marketing idea? Um, or is I don't that something that has some history to it? Really, no. I'd, I'd love to find out more about like where exactly that idea of marketing that came from. I kind of suspect it was like um, something in the 80s where Japan at that time was, you know, they had a little bit more disposable income. They were becoming much more familiar with, uh, with great wine. And I think they were like, oh, well, this is the way we can really market our high-end sake. Like, it'll be, <clears throat> it'll be wine. It'll kind of replace yeah. wine on wine less. And, you know, that's kind of that's always seemed a little bit off to me. Um, like it's not, it's not wine. Um, you know, it's its own thing and it can kind of find a, you know, a good spot, um, for it in restaurants besides Japanese restaurants. So, so on yeah. your, on your sake list, you, uh, separate sake into different categories mm-hmm. and not necessarily the traditional, uh, 
Dumai, Ginjo Daiginjo, yeah. but more the flavor profile categories yeah. that seem to make it seem more approachable to your to your consumers. Um, would this fall into the clean category? This, was, this is right at the top of the clean category. Yes. <laughs> All right. So tell us about what are we drinking? Um, so this guy, um, I always like to start um, people off with this one, uh, both with like staff trainings um, and also just as a good place to start. This is um, kind of the first sake that a lot of people end up becoming aware of. Um, when I was in Japan, I said, you know, I didn't have much uh, uh, knowledge of premium sake when I was there, but this is one that I knew. Um, one, because it's really prevalent. You find it a lot of great places um, and it's consistently very, very good. Um, but it's also, it's just a, a very like accessible um Accessible style, like as you're saying, clean. You know, um, oh, delicious! It's clean, but with but with still with a lot of character to it. It's still aromatic. Hmm. Oh, that's extraordinary! Yeah. So, <laughs> I want to know so much about sake. This is like uh, I, it's one of those things where I feel like people say to me all the time, like I love wine, but I don't know anything about it. Like that's how I feel with, with yeah. sake. Um, and this is so delicious, and there are similarities to wine, but it doesn't have the uh, no like very little acidity. Yeah, um, still well, makes your mouth water for some reason. It does. It's got um, a little bit of the uh, the umami characteristic, mm. that kind of mouth watering characteristic to it. Um, so this one that we're tasting to let people know, um, mm-hmm. this is um, it's a brewery called Hakaisan. These guys are probably for like um, out of craft breweries. They're one of the uh, the biggest ones. Um, I visited them uh, last year. Really wanted to see them, but they were um, visiting them. Really uh, kind of made me understand why, even though they're they're kind of such a bigger company than most of these places, why they're still so consistently good like just the um having met both the the president and the uh, the brewmaster there they really care about you know just producing really high quality product they don't um produce i think a lot of breweries end up doing these they, they want to find something that sells and they'll come up with like occasionally dodgy like oh this is like a fruit infused sake or like this is a sparkling one that's pink like marketed towards the ladies and like all these things are i'm like that just seems like you're you're kind of you, you don't even believe what you're saying there like you you, you kind of want to you know, get ahead of the consumers um, as opposed to produce something that you really, really love. And going to Hakaisan, even though they're a huge group, like everything I've tried by them is just um, incredible. And this is their their Junmai Ginjo, mm-hmm. which to me is really their like um, their flagship. Uh, you know, they're, they're they're kind of their flagship brand, and it's really um, it's one that to me this is like the taste of sake. And when you um, taste from you know beyond this thing, it's like always good to kind of refer back to this. Is like okay. How is this different from that, you know, from the Kaisan Junmai Genjo? I absolutely love this. So you call this a craft, a larger style craft yeah. brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you think separates a craft sake brewery from a, I guess, industrial or larger? Uh, how, do, how do you kind of think of that? That's a, yeah, that's a tricky question. Um, I've seen a, it's, it's a big thing is um, Koji production. Um, so you talked about Koji. Koji is a, a, a bacteria um, that kind of makes sake unique. It's um, instead of like the malting uh, process in beer, it's uh, basically they'll sprinkle these spores on steamed rice and those will then change the starches into sugars. And then the sugars um, will you know get eaten by yeast and any other kind of, you know, the same way you'd have in any uh, kind of fermented beverage. Um, Koji production is um, extremely like delicate and hands-on. And when I've gone to small craft breweries, like they'll just take you straight to the Koji room, um, which is usually in the center of the brewery. It's totally, um, it's either totally sterilized or it'll be with these like um, you know wooden planks. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, because it's dealing with bacteria, um, you know, they'll almost never let uh, non you know people that are authorized to be in there when it's in use. I've been doing a bunch when they're not in use, but I've never been in one where they're actually doing the process because you know obviously you sneeze or something and you can totally, totally mess, mess up, up the whole deal um but that that koji really provides a lot of like the um 
like uh, in, like the umami. We yeah. were talking about that savoriness. Um, and bigger places, just from what I've seen from uh, from photos and stuff, I haven't uh, visited any of these, but they're um, just really like much more big and industrial. Um, and I think they can still get a lot of like control out of that. But especially the smaller places, they just talk about you know how hands on um, they need to be with that process. So um, I don't know if I a hundred percent have a good definition for you, right. but that's kind of one thing that I, I sort of suspect would be a good definition of one. And is that a, is that a fun thing? Is that a good visit to go visit a, a sake brewery, or is it just more like a mechanical process? It's because you're not. It's not like you go to a winery and you're you know walking through the vineyards yeah. and sitting out on the back porch. But but it, do you, do you enjoy? Have you been to many sake breweries? Um, I've been to how many? Like seven or eight, I think at this point. Um, I just haven't had enough time to uh, go to Japan because I've been so busy with work here in New York. But um, definitely, uh, it's it's something. I mean, the places I've been. Um, it really depends on, on the spot. Uh, there's one, a lot of people ask me if it's like, Hey, I'm going to Japan. You know, I want to see a sake brewery. There's a place just outside of Tokyo called Solenoi, which is super easy to visit. You can take a train there. It's up in the mountains. It's technically in Tokyo, but it's like, so, you know, up in the mountains and not even rural, just totally like, like there's nothing around there except mm-hmm. the water and the brewery. Um, and they're set up for visitors. Some places are set up for visitors. Some are just kind of like a factory where I will, you know, get in touch with, um, whoever distributes that sake and say like, Hey, I want to go talk to these guys and see them. But, uh, some especially Hakai san actually, these guys have like a whole visitor center All right. set up. That, that's where I'm going to visit them next. <laughs> yeah. Cause that, that sake is extraordinarily they're, they're delicious. They're great. Yeah. It's like almost poundable. Uh, all right. What's the second one that you have here? Okay. Second one is um, Oze no Yukidoke. Uh, this is their Jinmai Ginjo. Um, so these guys, this is like totally the opposite end of um, uh, in terms of scale. What we just had. Uh, this is – I was really surprised because you can find Oze uh, quite a bunch of places in New York. But um, – I was shocked to find out it's only three guys make all of their sake. Three guys. Jeez. And two guys make their the beer, which is like they've got kind of a little beer brewery adjacent to the sake brewery. Um, and occasionally when the uh, when the sake guys get stressed, the, the beer guys will go over and help them out a little bit. But it's basically three guys produce everything, which is mind-blowing to me because it's, it's got to be an insane amount of work to wow. produce this stuff. I mean, now, do you find that there are a lot of high-quality sakes that are not available here in New York? Or do we get a lot of the good stuff? Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Are we... Sorry. Which we're doing, I think we're tasting that one, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. Uh, I was just looking in front of me. So this is not the Ozeni Yukidoke. This is actually also a three-person brewery, though, from what I've heard. <laughs> um, I haven't had a chance to visit these guys, okay. but... Um, Monica Samuels, who uh, I think uh, was on the show before. Monica was a guest, yeah. Yeah, she uh, introduced the sake to me. This is um, uh, Yuho. Uh, they are, uh, this is their Junmai Kimoto. It's so, I mean, just from the last style, it's completely different, completely right? Completely different. It's uh, much yeastier and earthier. Yeah. And almost has like a, a ground pill, like chalkiness to it. Yeah. I always think of like, um, especially when it gets warmer, you get a, a lot of like a cacao out of this one. Mm, um, unique, yeah. it's, it's just a, such a unique style. Um, and, uh, yeah, really great example. Of that kind of like an extreme example, of that Junmai style, that kind of earthy, really full, um, kind of sake. I like this, this one a lot. So do we get a good selection of sake in, in New York or are there, is there a ton of great stuff that's still in Japan that you can only get there? Um, Ironically, I mean, there's still a lot of great stuff in Japan that I would love to see here, but um, I always tell people, I'm just based on my experience, New York is like possibly the best place in the world to taste a variety of premium sake. Yes, New York wins again. New York, I mean, it's... it's, (laughs) All right, I love it. ironic, yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's taste the second. I mean, that was delicious. The second one from a a three-person... Yeah, uh, you know. (laughs) How rare is that? 
Okay, so I mean, you need a massive amount of rice to make sake, too, right? This stuff happens generally in larger scales. So yeah. I can imagine it's just a ton of a ton of work, especially for, for three people. Exactly. And it's a lot of water, too, actually. Just the mm. volume of water that they use. I mean, having read about it, it's like 10 times as much water used than actually gets in the bottle. Um, just what's used for, like, steaming rice and for washing all the equipment. Um, it's... It's pretty crazy the amount of stuff they have to do. Okay, and so this one, three-person, and what style is this one in? So this um, is, um, the first one we tasted was um, technically labeled a Junmai Ginjo. This is also a Junmai Ginjo. Mm. It's made with a really cool uh, strain of rice called Omachi rice that has this kind of really nice, like, fullness and nuttiness to it that makes really, really good sake. So sakamai uh, is sake rice, is that yeah, correct? exactly. So is sake rice different from sushi rice or rice that you would, you um, would eat, or how is it different? Totally different. It's, um... It's made Ooh, in a way that all, good. yeah, isn't that nice? <laughs> yeah. This is, I mean, one of my kind of favorite, like all around, uh, bottles at the restaurant. Um, it's yes, got that earthiness to it. Um, but it's got a really nice acidity at the end, kind of light, you know, mm-hmm. um, the Hakai sound's going to be much more kind of like a smooth finish, but this one just tingles at the end there. Mm. Yeah. So, so it is very different. Is it oh, like yeah. the protein structure? Um, or? Yeah. It's uh, basically the, uh, the starches are primarily mm-hmm. concentrated in the center of the grain. Um, so what that does is it allows it when you um, polish down the same way you'd go from like brown rice to white rice. Um, the more you polish down, uh, the more you're going to get that kind of uh, pure starch and the more kind of uh, elegant your sakes are going to taste. So we're going in kind of reverse order. We're going from like the outside in to um, those heartier sakes uh, that, you know, Yuho we just tried. This Oze is going to be, um, you know, more kind of in the middle. Um, and then the next one we're going to taste, the Daishichi here, is... Um, it's on the uh, the Daigenjo scale, which is when, when you get to like 50% or less of the center, um, you're just getting more and more of those pure starches. It's going to come out like much more um, elegant light, and you get some really like cool aromas out of that, too. And is that common to have a single type of rice in the sake, or is it usually blends of, of rice? Um, from what I've seen, it's almost always single. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll do it for like the rice they use for their koji starter will be different from the rice that they uh, they add later. Um, but it's, uh, I've seen some blends, but it's, it's more about, um, kind of single. It's actually not, I mean, people ask about a lot about rice in the U S and it's something where they'll label, uh, the rice to kind of, um, because people ask about it because they're so familiar with like grape, you know, varieties from wine and stuff like that. But it's, it's not something even in Japan that people really pay too much attention to. Like they mostly ask about where is this from? Yeah, so what? That's I mean, that's a really great point. So it's not the the rice that's important. I imagine that the that koji starter is pretty important. But then mm-hmm. is is would you say that the location that's from the the terroir of the sake is the most important? Um, the thing is, I mean, terroir with sake it's something that people are trying to do more and more of. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the water is the big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the local water source is the one thing you really can't change. A lot of times, I mean, Oze is buying. Um, rice from all over the country. They just try to buy the best stuff that they can. And obviously you can transport rice pretty easily, but you got to have a good water source uh, for a good um, sake brewery. And I've talked to a lot of people that say that they really want to brew their sake to really reflect uh, what their water source is like. The other really big thing for terroir is um, uh, is cultural, which is like, what is the local food like? Um, So I've heard a lot of people talk about like mountain sakes and ocean sake. So it's like, is it a landlocked prefecture with like, you know, more meat and preserved foods and pickles and stuff? Or is it more of like a, you know, something along the coast that has a lot of like fresh seafood? And um, a lot of times I've heard sake brewers talk about, um, you know, they they kind of adjust it based on the local cuisine. Like that's that's what they aim for. Yeah. I find that I tend to, I've, I've liked sakes that are made from these like natural ambient yeast. Yeah. 
uh, Yamaha, I believe yeah. it's called. Um, I find that they're, they remind me of like natural wines in a way that they're a little earthier, a little funkier. Yeah. Um, but I also certainly really love that first one, which is super clean and, and easily drinkable. Yeah. Okay, so this is a fancy sake. This is a fancy sake. Um, this is actually, uh, you may dig this because Yamaha, there's um, a similar one called Kimoto, mm-hmm. which is almost, uh, it's very, very similar in the resulting taste. Um, it's a slightly different process, but you still get that like acidity and funkiness to it. What's really cool about this, uh, this is the Daishichi uh, Mino Wamon, which I love that sake, but even like knowing Japanese, it's hard for me to pronounce that name. <laughs> How do you, do, I mean, there's so many sake labels that just look exactly the same yeah. to me. And how, you know, what, what's the best way for someone who likes sake to, to actually get a decent bottle of sake at a store? Um, it's, you know, ask for recommendations. Um, just talk to somebody about it. It's, it's hard to kind of see, um, off the label specifically. I mean, you're yeah. going to look at like, you know, Jinmai, Ginjo, Daiginjo. Um, if you're looking at good sake, I mean, if like, um, there's a lot of the really, really big, big producers, um, will not have that labeling on it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that stuff can be fine, but it's, um, same way that like I totally enjoy drinking Budweiser, but you know, if you're looking for like a really exciting bottle, um, <clears throat> you're really going to want to look for something that has that like kind of Jinmai, Ginjo or Daiginjo label on it. Okay. There. Yep. But this is, I mean, this is beautiful. Like very like concentrated, um, mm. very soft and smooth. And not as aromatic as some of the other ones, yeah. more like nuanced and elegant. Yeah. So this is um, what's really interesting about these guys is they only do that Kimoto style, which is really close to the Yamaha style. But um, it's something that they decided like in the 1930s when all these new uh, processes and techniques were developing, they decided, no, we're only going to do the original um, style. Um, but what's interesting is the current president, he really wants to um, make like really refined kind of elegant taste so there's this real cool contrast between like the funkiness of that kimoto style and then doing everything else they can to make it elegant so it it really like pulls out some cool acidity with it some fullness to the sake that you don't always get with uh these kind of daigendo styles they tend to be really big and fruity but this i love it's like it's more restrained it's more wine like like yeah i mean totally ignorantly i I assumed that sake did not have uh acidity but i'm feeling i'm definitely feeling it here there's for sure acidity in this that that's super cool Hmm. and this last one is uh, a familiar (laughs) one for me because i you poured this for me at at your restaurant and i loved it so much that i had it Specially ordered at Sakeya, yeah. and I was telling you the story before. Um, so this is called uh, a koshu sake. Tell us, tell us what a koshu is and how um, that exists. This actually, I don't know if this is characterized as koshu sake. Is it not? I thought that koshu is any. I mean, you're, any uh, age one? Yeah, I, I um, could be totally wrong. I guess you're the expert here, so <laughs> I, I, I'm still. I mean, learning stuff about this all the time. People uh, look to me about this. I don't. I, they don't label it as a koshu. Um, I think a uh, koshu. You might have to um, just. Have to have some kind of like polishing on it. This is a, a totally um, kind of unusual style. Uh, the guys who make this uh, brewery called Nambu Bijin uh, up north is their Nambu Bijin All Koji. Um, so this is made from 100% of that that Koji rice we're talking about, that inoculated rice. Um, usually you do Koji rice and a bit of the the white the steamed white rice. Um, but this the this brewer uh, Kuji San he kind of developed um, this style himself just kind of as an experiment, and it's. Um, you know, it's it's big, it's earthy, um, it's it's rich like a sherry, and they release it in vintages. So this is the, I think the 2008, 2008 we got there. Yeah. Um, I've had a bunch of different ones. They all kind of um, change up a bit. I don't know if that's, um, I need to talk to him about it, but it's, I suspect that's like how the, you know, Koji development went that year. Um, you know, obviously the, the age on the bottle, um, but just a really kind of big funky style. And this is sort of the 
kind of the really interesting different stuff that I love to showcase at Sakamai to show that like look you can pull rice in so many different directions it's extraordinary and such a departure from from all the other ones uh uh, Alyssa and I were, were eating some cheese and some nuts before, and we're like, oh, this is an extraordinary pairing, this with, with cheese. And then uh, I've read some of your interviews, and you've been talking about how good sake is with cheese yeah, for, totally. for a while. I had no, I had absolutely no idea. Um, and then we actually ended up bringing, I told you the story, but we ended up bringing it, the, the rest of the bottle to uh, our local sushi restaurant, Katsui, yeah. in uh, Park Slope, which is delicious, by the way. Uh, and it was terrible with sushi. <laughs> <laughs> this, I, would, I would not drink this with sushi. It was so bad. Yeah. Uh, but I think you served it to us with uh with steak and i was like oh that was a, a, yeah really well this great. one also we do a dish um it's kind of become the signature of the restaurant called uh egg on egg on egg mm. which is um it's like sea urchin caviar um caviar is awesome with sake because the um it's different acids than wine so it's not going to clash like wine uh, usually does with caviar um and uh yeah it's just great with the richness of the sea urchin um i love this stuff with foie gras i've had it with it's a great pairing sake. i've had a lot of different stuff awesome Jamie, thank you so much. Uh, we have to get going now. I, <laughs> yeah, no I, have, I have a million more questions yeah. for you. Uh, I would love to have you back one day. <laughs> okay, definitely. Um, for sure, you'll see us at Sakamai. And uh, for, if you guys haven't been, I definitely recommend checking it out. This is one of the most exciting sake programs I've ever seen. And obviously, Jamie knows his stuff. He's a great guy. Um, thanks so much for listening. Uh, I also want to give a special thanks to uh, our producers, Dory Morales and Jack Inslee. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.